Welcome to episode 13 of Namaste Bitches, hosted by me, Abigailia Shaman, where I ask my guests for one piece of advice. No dogma, no agenda, I just want to know the best way to live. And is this music to 1980s? Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely is. We gotta change the music again. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. First piece of order, um, if anyone has any music or free music they would like me to use to underscore the show, send it my way. I'd like to hear it. Anyways, today we have Dr. Jane Gregory on the podcast. She is a therapist specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy. We had a great conversation, so let's get right into it. Jane, what is your piece of advice? My piece of advice is test your instincts. Ooh, I like that a lot. So when you say test your instincts, what do you mean by that? I mean that we're often told to trust our instincts. And one of the things I find very often is that our instincts are wildly unhelpful and inaccurate. <laughs> so rather than trusting what your body's telling you to do actually check and see whether it's telling you to do something that's going to help you or um, help you live the life that you want to live why uh, why do you say that instincts are wildly unhelpful I really like that by the way because whenever you I'm confused and people are like just trust your instincts I'm like I don't know what they're telling me <laughs> yeah and I mean sometimes our instincts are really helpful and um, we obviously shouldn't ignore some instincts so if you're walking down the street and start to feel uncomfortable because someone's walking behind you then it's reasonable to speed up or check and see what's going going on behind you but our instincts are basically just a collection of experiences that our brain has stored as fact and sometimes our experiences from the past don't really match what's happening now so you are a uh, cognitive therapist that's right during the day so explain yep. ex what exactly is a cognitive therapist what what type of therapy is that so well it's cognitive behavior therapy so cognitive just being about thinking and behavior obviously being about behavior um and most importantly that it's focused on emotions so we're mm -hmm. trying to help people who uh, find their emotions distressing or uh, find that how their feeling is getting in the way of living their life and the therapy is really about looking at how thoughts and behavior and emotions all link in together and trying to make some changes to hopefully improve how you feel and you deal or you specialize in anxiety and low self-esteem specifically yeah mostly anxiety disorders um and alongside that comes a lot of self-esteem problems as well so the two go very close together but I'd say anxiety is probably my main specialty area. Do you yeah. find yourself often telling your patients to test their instincts? Absolutely that's I'm, I'm pretty much from the first session I'm I'm telling them to at least to start with to be aware of what their instincts are telling them and then to check whether that's actually helping them to achieve what they want to achieve and usually it's pretty obvious what type of people do you wind up seeing like in what I guess my question is in what states do they come to you because um I know some people are very pro-therapy some people 
are always a bit hesitant to go, like mm-hmm. they don't know whether they they need it or not. So when you see when patients start coming to you, where mm. where are they? At what point in their life are they? Usually at the point where it's getting in the way of something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's something that's changed in their life that means that whatever the problem is, no matter how long the problem's been there for, they usually come at the point where it's either gotten so intense that they can't tolerate it anymore or where it's stopping them from doing something that they want to do and often I have people who have had therapy in the past and for whatever reason they now feel like they're in a better position to make some changes Mm -hmm. than they were before or that they want to try a different kind of therapy very cool and you give do you give your patients I I read your uh, blog and Mm -hmm. your uh, website. What I really liked about your blog is how you talk about your own anxieties or like the one where you talked about your face getting red when you yep. get nervous or uh, the, your procrastination one because boy do I relate to that. But how you then test your uh, own theories on yourself. Yes, so exactly. do you give your patients homework? Yeah, and that's basically where the blog started from was that I, that homework is a huge part of CBT and the idea is that the the therapy is working if the person is making changes in their life, like that you should be able to see something improving for them and that means trying things out in between sessions, testing things in the real world, testing their instincts. And I realised that, that there was times where I was just baffled as to why they weren't doing what I'd asked them to do when it seemed so logical and straightforward. Mm -hmm. And there was a particular patient that I was working with at the time that I started that blog, which was working with trauma, PTSD. And part of the treatment for PTSD is actually retelling the story of what happened and then either writing it down again and again until it starts to have less impact or recording it and listening back to it again and again until it starts to have less impact and the idea is that it's a bit like if you watch the same scary movie over and over again eventually it won't have the same impact on it because your body knows that you're not actually in danger anymore mm-hmm. um, and it's a really really effective therapy but it's also really really hard yeah I was going to say the theory sounds perfect yeah. but yeah <laughs> and and that's what I think about CBT in general is that it's a really straightforward therapy but it's not easy Mm -hmm. and there was one particular patient that I was working with at the time and we'd recorded him telling the story in the session and then his homework was to listen back to it every day and the idea was that it would get easier to listen to and that that would help him to reprocess the memory and realize that he's not in danger anymore of um, the thing that had caused the problem to begin with and he just wasn't doing it Mm -hmm. and I was fairly new at the time and just not really understanding and I don't like not understanding why something isn't happening especially if it seems to make sense yeah and so I was thinking about that analogy which I often tell patients which is about if you watch the same scary movie over and over again eventually it stops being it stops having the same impact sometimes it's still you still find it disgusting or disturbing but the fear actually will fade over time and then I realized that I don't watch scary movies because I don't like feeling terrified (laughs) and 
then I thought, oh, maybe the reason why I don't watch scary movies is clearly the same reason why people don't want to do that type of homework, listen back to it. So I basically set myself the challenge to go and I asked my friends what were the scariest movies that they'd seen and then I started with the one that I thought sounded the tamest and then watched that. Which, do you remember the movie? Um, I'm just curious. So I think Silence of the Lambs was the first one that I watched that I'd <laughs> never, the never seen before. Yeah, that was the tamest. And then I watched The Thing, which someone had told me was terrifying. And then, But both of those, I was just watching them and thinking, oh, actually, I'm not getting that scared. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I got to Wolf Creek, which was at the top of my list. Yeah. And uh, that absolutely did it. And I was wearing a heart rate monitor at the time, so I could actually see on a chart just how scared I was getting and there's this it's actually not too bad for the first half of the film and then there's just this period of about 20 minutes which is just horrific and because what I asked them to do is to repeat it over and over again I had set that as my challenge and watched it the first time and I'd rented it on iTunes so I only had three days to do this experiment (laughs) and I got to I think I had like six hours left on the rental and I wasn't going to pay for it again. And I'd already watched it once, but I had just completely put off watching it the second time. Mm -hmm. And I realized that's exactly what's happening for my patients Mm -hmm. is that they're doing it the first time and it's awful. And so of course they're putting off doing it the second time. And so when I did watch it the second time, it was a little bit easier, but not, not by much. And then because I only had a few hours left to do it, I just got, I watched the whole thing through again and then I just cut to the bit where my heart rate was, you know, over 100 and watched that another three times until my heart rate eventually came down. And I realised it wasn't until the third time of watching it that it started to feel like, like actually feel true that it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And so what I ended up doing then was when I work with people with trauma, I made sure that the first time they had to tell their story, I booked in a longer session and got them to do it two or three times so that they could see the change before they left the room. That is such a great idea. Um, And it made a huge difference that, that people could actually see the shift. And because they're there with a supportive person, it makes it a little bit safer. They're not going off on their own having to do this thing that felt awful the first time. They get to see how it gets a little bit easier mm-hmm. by the third time. And then they felt more prepared to go and do it on their own at home. I really appreciate that Jane goes and tests her theories out on herself and uh, blogs about them. I think that's really cool that you can see her process because would you go to a, you know, a swimming teacher who couldn't swim? Uh, I just think it's cool. If you want to check out her blog, uh, cognitivebehaveyourself.com. Of course, I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe you could pause it and check right now if you wanted to, but then come back to the podcast because it gets good. I ask her if her patients read the blog. Uh, but before we get more into that, uh, it's day nine. We're in the middle of the 14 day exercise challenge. And I just want to say that it has been going really well. Well, I think it has been going really well. Um, 
I have found it really inspiring to see everyone from literally around the world posting how they've incorporated 30 minutes or sometimes longer of movement into their day. And just... I just think it's so cool. You know, uh, Thomas is in Australia lifting weights. Amanda Hoover is in Greenville, Ohio, taking her kids to Shawnee Prairie. Uh, Elizabeth Stump is going on walks with her kids. Christine is BMX biking with her son in Glasgow. And I think it's awesome how you guys are including your families in the exercises or moving or walking or whatever you want to call it. Also, how a lot of Londonites, uh, me, Beth, Juliet, Alexa, are incorporating it into their day. Uh, and Joe Marsh is, you know, the other day, a couple days ago now, she wrote that she, her goal was to go get lunch, but she had to walk somewhere that was at least a half hour away to do that. And I thought that was so cool. And congratulations to everyone who's doing the challenge. And the reason why I made it 14 days, by the way, is because if even if you miss a day or two, you've still worked out like nine days minimum, I think everyone is on, which is huge. Or, you know, some people are going to make it the whole 14 days. So if you have fallen off the wagon and you want to keep doing it, um, go ahead. I mean, we have today's nine, so 10, 11, 12, 13, four, you know, you'd think I would be able to do the math myself, um, but I can't. Because I hate maths. But uh, anyways, there's, you know, just jump back in. Uh, it's just about, you know, shaking things up and incorporating movement into your life that might not have been there before. It doesn't have to be super stressful. I take classes because I love classes, but you don't have to pay for a gym membership or, you know, do all that sort of stuff. You can just go on a walk with some friends or do some tricep dips on the couch, whatever you want to do. Uh, Beck Hill put on a YouTube workout video, which there's so much free workout videos on YouTube. So yeah, but just congratulations to everyone. We still got a few more days to go. So keep posting your pictures and your workouts. I love hearing about them. And uh, yeah, enough of this, enough of this. Uh, we've got to get back to the podcast, guys. So here we are with more uh, Dr. Jane Gregory. Do your patients read the blog? Um, I don't know if... I don't promote it to them. Right. Um, <laughs> I know that some people some people in my private practice have contacted me and have said that they've read the blog uh-huh. and that they liked the idea that I was testing things out on myself and that, that was one of the reasons they wanted to come and see me. So that's been really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but with my NHS patients, I'm not... I'm not sure. I certainly don't tell them about it. I know, I know that some people look me up because before I started doing private practice, I still would find Google searches that got to the blog by typing in Jane Gregory, NHS psychologist, which meant that my patients had been allocated me as a therapist and were then Googling me to find out more about me, Yeah, um, which is fair enough. So I'm sure some people would have read it before they came to see me, but um, yeah, we don't talk about it yeah well I was uh I really enjoyed the blog and um like I said I've been in therapy and I've been out of therapy and one thing I will say about my last two therapists is they were very private Mm -hmm. like I had no clue what their 
anything about their life and whenever I'd ask it would be like well why is that important to you I'm like this isn't fair um yeah so I just found it really humanizing and really cool that you're like oh this is how it it works and it's like it makes it also to me makes the therapy more attainable because you're breaking down how like okay this is the thing this is what I do Mm -hmm. this is the outcome yeah. Anyways, it's just me complimenting you. <laughs> well, I think it's well really thank cool. you. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's it's it is it, different therapists do it different ways, obviously, but also different kinds of therapy require different levels of um, knowledge, intimacy. Yeah, there's a word for it. <laughs> well, that's completely gone out of my head. No, nope, no worries. Disclosure, self-disclosure. Yeah. Um, so in particular types of psychotherapy or analytic therapy, which is more the Freudian mm-hmm. style of therapy, the the theory is that the reason the therapy works is because you are a completely blank slate, which allows the patient to project their issues onto you mm-hmm. with a completely blank slate in front of them. And that the more that they know about you, the more disruptive that is to the therapeutic process because it stops them from being able to see key people in their lives in you and st- stuff like that so that kind of therapy requires a pretty blank slate from the therapist and so they they will be the ones who are saying why is that important to you or what does that mean that you ask that yeah that kind of thing what drew you to uh cognitive behavioral therapy specifically just made sense to me it Mm -hmm. just really made sense to me right from the start the first point that i started learning about it i thought yeah this is this is what i want to do just the idea of particularly with regard to the experiments like just not accepting anything as fact and not continuing to do the same thing over and over again just because that's what you've always done Mm -hmm. the idea of trying things differently and not trusting your instincts and instead testing your instincts that idea really just sat very well with me right from the start yeah and one of the things with cognitive behavioral therapy is to remove the meaning from words am i saying that right uh yes so that well that's one aspect particularly so there's a particular uh particular type of problem that that would be useful for where if um if your brain has connected certain words or certain sentences with a particular meaning for you Mm -hmm. then every time you think those words or every time you think that meaning that sentence you'll feel a really strong reaction so and it can that goes across different types of problems so in low self-esteem for example it might be thoughts about being worthless or a failure that sort of thing and every time you think that it just completely feels true and then the emotion is as if that is true Um, and then for other types of problems so OCD is a, a good example where it can be a lot more arbitrary than that it can just be random words or thoughts that pop into your head and then stay there obsessively mm-hmm. and trigger off an emotional reaction then then the therapy is about trying to detach that word or set of words from the meaning that you apply to it so the, the example for OCD that everyone seems to know about is the cleanliness type of OCD or germ phobia where just the the thought that I feel unclean or I feel dirty just feels true. So even though logically you can see that your hands are completely clean and that you've not touched anything in the last half an hour, the, the feeling is 
I'm dirty or I'm contaminated in some way. And it feels like that feeling won't go away until you wash your hands, which is the compulsive Mm -hmm. side of it, the compulsive behavior. So if you can detach that thought of I'm contaminated from actually feeling contaminated and feeling disgusted with yourself or feeling anxious about what's going to happen, if you can detach those two things, then you don't have to do the behavior and then you don't have to spend hours every day washing your hands and keeping everything clean and avoiding things that might make you feel like you're dirty even Mm -hmm. if you're not. So what is an exercise that you might prescribe to someone who has that going on in their head? The first step for something like that, the first step is to check how much they believe it on a rational level. So um, some people will come in and say, I know it's completely irrational. I know I'm not dirty. I know I just wash my hands, but I just feel unclean. Mm -hmm. And other people will come and say, no, what I'm worried about is if I touch that thing, I'll get really sick. Or what's also quite common is worrying about passing those germs on to other people. So it's actually quite common in new mothers worrying about um, contaminating their children. So they get really obsessed about washing their hands and not letting anyone touch the baby and not exposing them to any germs or anything. And if the person rationally believes that that is true, then the first thing you have to do is challenge the logic of that. Mm -hmm. And that might be just through doing some research about how germs are spread and how likely it is to catch diseases and that kind of thing. But I would say that most people who come to see me have already done all of that. Yeah. And they or they and that's one of the reasons why they feel so awful about the problem is because they're ashamed that they know logically that they're not contaminated or that, that their baby is going to be fine. But it just doesn't feel true in the moment and they can't shake that feeling that they're contaminated in some way or that they might pass on their germs to somebody else so the treatment in that case is then detaching the meaning detaching the feeling from the thought and getting used to tolerating that feeling without doing the behavior Mm -hmm. because every time you wash your hands because you've thought you're contaminated it's like telling your brain oh thanks brain you were right to tell me that I was contaminated I've sorted that out now and of course that feeling only lasts for a short amount of time because it's not true it's not actually helping you to be cleaner so the behavior then just repeats itself so the idea is to put yourself in the situation where you feel contaminated but not be able to do the hand washing and get used to tolerating that feeling of being contaminated and realize that that's not that feeling will pass on its own that that's you don't have to stop that feeling by washing your hands oh cool um i was listening to the episode of the illusionist that you were on and i found it really fascinating and one thing that you said on it that i totally agree with too by the way is that affirmations aren't necessarily as helpful <laughs> as everyone thinks they are yeah I come from, uh, I'm a yoga instructor and I, I have a, I have a fair amount of my community who are really big into affirmations, but I'm not nearly as big mm-hmm. of a fan yeah. of them. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about why they, <laughs> just tell everyone why they don't work in their bullshit, please. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I still, I'm still a bit of a believer in the placebo effect that if something makes someone feel good and it's not getting in the way of anything in their life then 
just do it. It doesn't matter if you're not hurting anyone, you're not hurting yourself, then fine. So if you feel good, do it. But in terms of, as, there's not a whole lot of evidence, shall we say, to yeah. say that affirmations actually do anything other than provide a short-term boost. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically, I think what I was explaining in that podcast is that you can't you can't just attach meaning to words arbitrarily that your your body makes those connections through experience mm-hmm. not not through logic and information so you can't just tell yourself that you're great and you're wonderful and suddenly believe it you have to actually experience that so doing things that make you feel good or doing things that give you a sense of achievement are what makes a difference mm-hmm. So the one place where affirmations might help is that if someone says a positive affirmation and that then li- makes them do something positive in their life that will give them a good feeling, then it's actually what they've done that makes the difference, not the affirmation. Okay. Very um, cool. But I had the same problem in yoga class, especially in pregnancy yoga. There's lots of talking to the baby and things like that. And I've got no problem with chatting to my own stomach when I was pregnant, but... Um, yeah, like the idea that you can make your baby healthy just by saying, may you be healthy and may you be happy and all that stuff. And I just, just didn't buy into that at all. But again, if it makes people feel good and that releases good positive hormones and that helps them with their pregnancy, then that's fine too. Is, is there any proof that like having your baby while it's still in your stomach, listen to Mozart or anything like that, is any of that (laughs) Is there any scientific basis with any of that stuff? I actually don't know. Mm. I um, just figured out, you, you brought up talking to your baby. I was like, maybe yeah. you know. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, our baby got a lot of uh, Blur and Johnny Cash. So, Oh, your baby's <laughs> going to be so cool. <laughs> she did go to Blur for her first birthday. So, did she really? Yeah, Blur in Hyde Park, and she had an amazing time. Aha! I knew affirmations were bullshit, but... Uh, uh, I do want to reiterate, I really liked what uh, Dr. Jane Gregory had to say about uh, you can't attach meaning to words, but if you do things that make you feel that way, so just by saying, I feel great, doesn't m- mean you feel great, but if you do something that makes you feel great, I don't know, like c- completing a 14-day workout challenge, something like that. Uh, then those words have a meaning and then that's how you can change your life. Uh, at least that's how I interpreted it. I think it's great. Um, oh, side note, as I'm editing this, I realized I went to Jane's house to record this cause she's a very busy woman with a full-time job and a baby. So I went to her house to record it and the washing machine is on in the background, which as we were recording, I didn't think it was picking up that much, but now that I'm listening back to the edit that's what that is in the background guys your uh, earbuds in your iphones or your car stereo aren't uh, all weird it is the fact that there is actually a washing machine going on because hey man doctors need clean clothes too um before we get back into the podcast i do want to tell you guys something that's really exciting for me um i am doing my edinburgh show in london uh, on November 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hen in Chickens. Uh, you can get tickets if you go to 
unrestrictedview.co.uk. Of course, I'll put this in the show notes. But this is my Edinburgh show. It was really well received. If you didn't get to see it, I would really love for you to see it. If you did get to see it, maybe come back. Because not only am I doing my show on November 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hen and Chickens, but November 11th is my 30th birthday. So uh, I've booked myself a show. And then I plan to hang out with friends and, you know, just kind of get drunk. So if you listen to the podcast and you like it, please come along and come to the show. And then I'd love to meet you afterwards. That'd be super fun. And, uh, yeah. So hopefully see you there again November 11th, 1111 at the Hen and Chickens at 730. And uh, let's get back to more with Dr. Jane Gregory. Um, so what are some things that you do outside of your practice to keep yourself healthy or vibrant or, uh, alive or <laughs> words, words. Um, so what, like, what are some of your hobbies? What are things that you like to do I, for well, yourself? I also do a bit of yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I run, I really like running and that, that's something I was listening to the, podcast with Sophie Scott and listening to her talking about running and actually my circumstances were pretty similar that while I was doing my doctorate I was finding my head getting quite cloudy and stressed and started running with a friend and actually felt so much better immediately just it was a chance to switch off and just be completely in the moment and so then just started signing up for half marathons and marathons and just kept doing it. How, how many half marathons and marathons have you done? Um, I've done two marathons. Wow. Um, and at the end of the second one, actually not even at the end, about two thirds of the way through the second one, I realized that I didn't need to do that again. Um, I've decided, yeah, marathons and childbirth, I think is the same thing. <laughs> Basically the first marathon like while I was doing it I was like oh, this is this is good I feel really good about myself and then about three quarters of the way through I was like what, what the hell did I choose to do this for and then at the end I'm like I'm never doing that again um and then a few days later oh maybe it wasn't that bad and then about six months later actually you know what I think I could do that again and then I had exactly the same experience with childbirth that while it's actually happening I mean, this is ridiculous why am I putting myself through this and immediately after like, that's it I'm never doing that again six months later Oh, actually, you know what? I think I could do this again. <laughs> but yeah, sec- end of the second marathon, I definitely thought, no, nah, I don't need to put my body through that. I've done it twice. I got almost exactly the same time both times. So it wasn't like I was working towards anything. And it was, yeah, just a lot of hard work for some reward. <laughs> I've run one marathon and I got three quarters of the way through and just hated it and I don't and it, now it's been I, I did it in April and I still don't have a desire to do another marathon a half marathon mm-hmm. yes which one did you do I did Brighton ah uh, I did Brighton was my second marathon that oh, was yeah. my deciding marathon too. well because well then you know towards the end you start you this is what got me about it. At the 18th mile, you're running towards the seafront. Yeah. So it's like you're there and then you make a right and you start running away from the finish line. Yeah. Do you remember that and part? And you go uphill. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, that was the big mind fuck to me to be like, it's right there. Yeah. And now I'm running that I'm way. running away yeah. from it. Yep. And you're going uphill and then you get back down to the seafront and there's like three miles before you see anyone again. Yeah. And the day that I did it, it was just full force wind in my face as well. And so it was hot, but full wind. So I was too hot and it was a real struggle running yeah. in, into the wind. Hard to catch your breath like yeah. that. Yeah. Do you have a desire to run another one now that some time has passed? Did you run this no. last one? No, no, that was two years ago. Okay, cool. Yeah, and my first one was a really small marathon in the like kind of in the forest in Switzerland and was really beautiful and oh, so my cool. memories of that are actually really nice. Yeah. Whereas my memories of Brighton are that point of running away from the finish line <laughs> and then running into the wind. Whereas yeah, the the, the first one was I, st- I have much nicer memories of that one and it was you know, it was maybe 200 people or something oh wow it was amazing it was on trails and next to a creek and it was beautiful what's the name of that one i want to run it was uh winter tour is the name of the region cool so you don't have a desire to run another marathon no but you said half marathons i'm happy with and a half marathon i can do now without having to train for or anything so i i could just do a half marathon so it doesn't feel like i have to put in all the work yeah, well, uh, the last half marathon I did, I've only done two. I make it sound like a lot. But, uh, you know, you're done in two hours. Yeah. Two, two and a half, maybe. And then you have the rest of your day. Whereas, like, when I ran the marathon, it took me five hours to do it. And then by the end of it, I was just like, I can barely walk. It took yeah. me a week to be. Yeah, you can't do anything Yeah, afterwards. I was like, this is, there's no reason to do this again. Yeah. But so how often are you running now? Um... So now, well, now I'm six months pregnant, so I'm not. Congratulations, very often. by the Thank way. <laughs> obvious to you, but probably not obvious from my voice. Um, so I'm still running a little bit. So actually, that's what I was doing this morning. I um, went went out for a little run, but it's very slow and very stop start. Yeah. But it's it feels really good, so it's really nice to get moving. Um, so yeah, I haven't done a big run since. Um, well, I did a half marathon right near the start of my pregnancy when I was still in really good shape. Okay, And then, cool. um, yeah, now just been sort of running once every few weeks. Just to get moving then. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this is just my own curiosity, and you don't have to answer it if it's too personal, but when you're pregnant, how does that change your mobility? Like, so you're running less, but are you doing more yoga? Are you relaxed? Yeah. relaxing more how does that change it yeah well trying to do more yoga that definitely helps um running it, it's more of a shuffle really than a mm-hmm. run i know some people and me I've, too I've and i'm not even out. pregnant <laughs> but I, I i see pregnant people running who they they run like well they run more like i run when i'm not pregnant mm-hmm. whereas i'm a lot more shuffly with the yeah bit less balance I suppose but also just less fitness um but I I find mobility in general mobility wise it's not too bad and I think keeping up doing yoga has really really helped with that I'm starting to get a little bit stiff and sore now but I've gone six months without having too many problems so did you have to talk yourself into the fact that it's still okay to run and it's still okay to do yoga yeah yeah 
especially with the running, I did loads of research on that because there's all this stuff that said, oh, you shouldn't get your heart rate over a certain, like, 120. I can't even remember what it was now. And it that didn't quite feel right to me. I was thinking, like, thinking about what childbirth is like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make much sense that you should be completely inactive or real, like, much less active during pregnancy than you normally would be. And so I, yeah looked up the research and it turns out there's not a lot of evidence for that advice and actually if you're already a runner then it's really healthy to keep running and I mean the main advice is just to listen to your body so I don't I never run to the point where I'm in pain or even really uncomfortable I just run a little bit get my heart rate up and then have a walk for a little bit mm-hmm. but um, as long as you listen to your body there's no reason not to keep doing regular exercise yeah very cool. Yeah, I remember uh, reading in all places in a Stephen King novel uh, uh, about um, someone who gets pregnant uh, and doesn't give birth to a monster. It's a different type of story. But how it's the book is set in, like, I think the 40s and how that was a time when women weren't supposed to move at all mm-hmm. when they were pregnant. And this uh, this man prescribed, like, walking and all this because his whole thing was you – you wouldn't tell a professional athlete not to exercise before the big game. Why would you tell someone who's about to give birth not to do anything before they put themselves through such a physical Yeah, thing? I mean, a lot of people, especially the first pregnancy, you go through 24 hours of labor. That's pretty exhausting. Wow. And needing to be able to deliver at the end. Yeah. Literally deliver at the end. <laughs> it's... If, if you just rest the whole, and and that's another thing I think that fits with the idea of testing your instincts it is that the instinct is actually to stay still like oh I should rest I should look after myself and and yeah we should get more sleep and definitely look after ourselves but to prepare for something like that mm-hmm. you're in much you're, you're in a much better position if you're doing some kind of regular activity even if it's just regular walking yeah um, and yoga definitely for just sort of keeping everything a little bit stretchy. <laughs> yeah. What type of yoga do you do? I'm just curious. Um, Iyengar. Is the okay. Main type. Cool. I quite like the sort of alignment mm-hmm. stuff rather than I'm not really into flow. I'm not quite flexible enough to be able to quite get into the position before they're moving on to the next one. So I like the style of Iyengar where it's just staying in one position and focusing. I like the body focus and Mm -hmm. thinking about what your body's doing and where everything is in your body. Yeah. I teach a Bikram yoga, which is uh, not a flow yoga where you go, you hold a pose and then you come back out, but Mm -hmm. you're in a hot room. And whenever I've taken flow classes, sometimes I really love them. And sometimes I'm like, but I'm not, I'm not (laughs) ready. I haven't, I haven't been in this long enough to appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I find myself getting really f- frustrated. I know it's not really the point of yoga, <laughs> but because I had such an amazing teacher when I first started doing the Iyengar stuff, and it would, would be in the pose for ages, and it was really about paying attention to your body. And it really is quite like the ideas about mindfulness and stuff that I also integrate into my therapy. So, again, it just fit really nicely with mm-hmm. my way of thinking. And then I would go to classes where the, it, everything just felt really rushed and it felt like there's music playing and there's loads of instructions and loads of movement and I just 
thought I just wanted to be still and in the moment and actually I'm having to think about the next thing rather than just focus on what's happening mm-hmm. right now. When, what, is, what does mindfulness mean? <laughs> I've used the term. It's just occurred to me. I don't really know what it means. Like when you say uh, you've used it in yoga and in your practice, how, how do you mean? I guess the, the general principle of mindfulness is just about choosing where your focus of attention is mm-hmm. and, and being in the moment and being conscious of where you direct your attention. So in yoga, that's focusing on your body and your breath and paying attention and accepting discomfort as just being part of the experience in the moment in therapy. So there's, um, some people do mindfulness just for general wellbeing and there are courses for that, but there's also mindfulness based cognitive therapy, Mm -hmm. which is specifically recommended for recurrent depression. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we do in the NHS is offer a course of mindfulness for recurrent depression particularly around the idea of just accepting changes in your body and changes in your mood and thoughts that come into your mind and not getting tied down by them. Mm-hmm. Not, um, like if you wake up feeling a bit crappy one day, not assuming that this is the start of another episode of depression because once you start to think, oh, I'm starting to get depressed, then you change what you do mm-hmm. as a result of those thoughts. So it's more about just saying, oh, well, this is just how I feel right now and every feeling you've ever had is temporary and therefore this is temporary too. Yeah. Rather than always thinking ahead to what it means or thinking back to what it was like last time and what that might mean this time. So it's just about being in the moment with what's actually happening right now rather than what could happen or what has happened. One of the things I really love about getting to record this podcast and getting to interview people is how I get reminded about things I might have already known but stopped applying and just hearing Jane talk about mindfulness and choosing where your focus is is just a really beautiful thing and I think she just words it very eloquently uh, which is something I don't do very well. I haven't talked to anyone all day and for someone who deals with words when I don't talk all day I get tongue-tied very easily. Um, But yeah that's that's why I love doing this podcast and I love being able to share it with you guys. It's a lot of fun for me. If you do like the podcast, I know I've asked this before, but I think with the challenge and such, we might have a few more listeners on board. Um, go to iTunes and leave a review, please. Uh, when people leave reviews and comment on iTunes, that bumps us up further in the iTunes queue. And then we have an opportunity to create a bigger network. So when we do challenges on the Facebook group or when we're all talking to each other and recommending certain things, there'll be more of us to share. And I think that would be really cool. So if you like the podcast, please go and leave a review. Or if that's not your thing, if you're listening to this via another form of download, I I don't know how internet works, uh, just uh, maybe tell a friend about the podcast. I'd love that too. Uh, let's let's just get the word out there. Okay, uh, enough, enough of me asking you guys to do stuff. Let's enjoy more Jane Gregory. I asked her a little bit about the differences between working for the NHS and her own private practice, and I also asked her what she does when she gets a patient that's just kind of whiny. 
Uh, here we go. More podcasts. Let's do it. So you have both a private practice and you work for the NHS. Mm-hmm. How are those different? Uh, well, my NHS job, the, the in terms of the type of therapy, it's pretty similar. It's a CBT-based service. I work for um, what's called IAPT, which is Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, and it's about five or six years old now. And it basically was put into place to help the people who were falling through the gaps or who weren't quite severe enough for specialist services but were bad enough that it was really getting in the way of living their life and stopping them from working or making work difficult and so this the IAPT services were set up across the country to treat mainly anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. and offering treatment you know sometimes up to 20 sessions of CBT on the NHS and helping people to get back to living their lives mm-hmm. basically uh, so that the sort of treatment that I do there is pretty similar to what I do in private practices a lot of anxiety and some depression and self-esteem stuff as well uh, but I also work as a manager in that service so actually now don't do a whole lot of clinical work mm-hmm. I do a lot more supervising other people and um, developing some my main areas setting up groups in the service and making sure that we're using our resources efficiently and getting people seen as soon as possible. So using groups in particular to do that so that there's something available straight away for people, even if they have to wait for their individual sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're basically just one's NHS and one's private practice. There's no difference in the way they're run. Well, the private practice is just my own business. So yeah. I, I, I get run it however I want. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Excuse me. Um, Yeah, so I mean, the NHS is, I'm fitting in with the way the NHS works, whereas in my private work, I can set it up how I want and see the people that I want to be seeing. And Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously a bit more flexibility then in terms of how long I see people and how long I see them for and what what I do with patients is just a bit more flexibility. Do you ever have someone who comes in and your thought is you're fine you're just a bit whiny (laughs) um if (laughs) i'm very big on paying attention to my own uh emotional experience when i meet a new patient and if i'm having that emotional experience then i stop and ask myself if that's what i'm thinking about them um if that was true, they wouldn't be here for a start. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that they're going through that makes this necessary for them? Um, but also, if I'm having that reaction, then maybe other people in their life have that reaction as well, and maybe other people also aren't that sympathetic mm-hmm. towards their problems. Um, so if I if yeah if I <laughs> if I feel like someone's just being a bit whiny, it's worth finding out working out what it is that's triggered that off in me yeah (laughs) and usually there's a lot more behind it so often the people who come across that way where i think oh your life is actually fine when you look at it look into it a bit deeper there's there might be quite a lot of avoidance or Mm. um that a lot of putting on a brave face and not really talking about their emotions so it could be that they're under representing what they're actually experiencing Mm -hmm. and so what's brought them there is 
what they're actually experiencing but they're not very good at expressing what's going on for them so it comes across as just what sort of in the nhs has traditionally been called the worried well yeah (laughs) but actually if someone's there asking for help which is not an easy thing to do Mm -hmm. there's probably a good reason for it does it take you a while as a therapist it does it take a couple sessions to get to the root of an issue or is it is it clear right away or i guess it varies between patient yeah, and patient it varies completely so some people come in knowing exactly what the problem is exactly how it's affecting them and all we then have to do is work out how to make the changes mm-hmm. other people come in just knowing that they don't feel good and not really knowing why and that then can take a little bit longer to work out mentioned in your blog that i uh really liked was you talked about procrastination mm-hmm. and i mentioned that before and that's i think an issue with i know it's certainly an issue with me i feel like everyone feels really bad about procrastinating like it's so de- demified mm-hmm. if you will and uh my sister is actually uh, a art therapist she just got certified mm-hmm. in that and her and i were talking and uh, she was like, you know, you just have to accept that procrastination is part of your process. So um, do you think it's a necessary tool for some people or? I, I go by the basic principle that everything, every behavior that we've developed, we've developed for a reason. Like mm-hmm. That humans have developed that for a reason. So there must be some benefit to procrastinating. And that's what I was testing out in the blog is the idea that is it always a bad thing or does it sometimes help you? And I think the things that it can be really helpful for is if the reason you're procrastinating is that it brings on a really strong feeling that you're just not ready to deal with. So you might be putting off raising an issue with someone that you care about and it's too painful to talk about that issue with them or something like that. And you're just not in a strong enough place to be able to do that. In that case, procrastination is actually quite helpful because it allows you to put things off and to distract yourself from it until you're ready to do it Mm -hmm. i think it's also really helpful for a creative process so and it's quite common in people in creative professions that it procrastinating allows your sort of subconscious to process things in the background while you're doing other things and that can often come up with much more creative and interesting solutions to problems than if you were to sit down and deliberately try and come up with the answer. Mm-hmm. So I think that times where a creative solution or a creative um, outcome is necessary, then I think procrastination can be really useful. And if you're not ready to deal with what needs to be dealt with, then it can also be useful. The point where it's not so helpful is obviously where the consequences get worse the longer that you put it off mm-hmm. or options get doors get closed the longer that you put it off, then clearly it's not so helpful. And I think that you're right that it has been completely demonized because people then feel ashamed about procrastinating. And then because of the feeling of shame that stops them even further because going back to the task makes them feel ashamed for not having done it already. And so then it's not the task that they're avoiding. It's actually the shame that they're avoiding. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I would work on in therapy is looking at what are those secondary emotions? What, what is it that you're feeling about what's happening rather than the initial emotion? So the procrastination might come from a place of anxiety or nervousness or insecurity, but then how you feel about procrastination, procrastinating 
might be a much stronger and um, more painful emotion. And if that then is adding to the procrastination because you're understandably trying to avoid feeling bad about yourself, yeah. then that just makes it worse. So if you can focus on that first, if you can remove that outer layer of shame or guilt or anger at yourself for not being able to make the changes to start with, that puts you in a better position to be able to make the changes that you want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question I'd like to ask you is how do you find yourself testing your instincts in your own life? I try and do it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So particularly things where I, again, I think I was talking before about when patients come in and they sort of say, oh, I logically know that this isn't true, but just when I'm in the moment, it doesn't feel true. And I notice that quite a lot. And particularly, like, and everyone's got their own... Um, beliefs about how the world works that guide their behavior and some of them are helpful and some of them aren't and I know for me that whenever it comes to not being liked or approved of or accepted or respected that though that's the thing that pushes my buttons and so if I'm avoiding doing something and I logically know that I need to get it done that's the time where I'll test my instinct so I'll look at it look at it and just say okay what's actually going on here what's stopping me from doing this Mm -hmm. and quite often it comes down to that same thing over and over again that oh I'm worried about offending someone or I'm worried about putting someone out or asking for something that maybe I'm not entitled to or something like that so that then it's just about saying okay well if I didn't have that feeling what would I do differently Mm -hmm. so if I was only relying on the logic of the situation what would I do and then I'll do that instead try it out very cool and the more often you do that the more it starts to that that becomes the new experience that then that starts to feel true as well so the more so having a baby is a perfect example because i'm not great at asking for help and you just can't do everything by yourself when you've got a small child so the first time you ask for help when you're not used to it it feels really awful feels like people are going to say no feels like you're going to be rejected or that people are going to see you as weak or not coping um but each time you ask and people are fine with it yeah and nothing falls apart the more that starts to feel true and so you start to believe oh well, maybe it's okay to need help or ask for help well not e- yeah not even need it just ask for it just yeah. because you want it that that's okay too cool awesome well that's pretty much it we've done it um how do people reach you or is there uh, like do you want to direct them to your blog or do you have a twitter or um i'll direct them to my blog i i do have a twitter but um i've not made very many tweets and have very few followers and i don't really understand how it all works (laughs) i don't think anyone does well, some people do because they do it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my blog is is called Cognitive Behaviour Self. Yeah. And the website is cognitivebehaviourself.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the main place to, to find me. There's... Are you blogging on a more regular basis now? Or are you trying to get back into it? Because for a while it looks like you stopped for a bit and then you've started again. Yeah, that just happens sometimes. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would like to be doing it more regularly. And I mean, partly it's nice to do something a, b- a bit different and creative, but also every time I do it, I feel like it has an impact on how I do therapy and how I see my patients. And so the more often that I do it, 
with purpose, yeah, the better it is for my, um, well, for me personally, but also professionally. So, yes, my aim is to do it more regularly, but. But yeah, you see how it goes. I mean, sometimes I procrastinate and that's fine too. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) as discussed. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And this was a really lovely talk. And can you just say your piece of advice one more time? Test your instincts. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much. There you have it. Episode 13 with Dr. Jane Gregory. Like she said, if you want to read her blog, please go to cognitivebehaviorself.com. If you want to reach her actual practice and maybe talk to her, I don't know, you can go to hampsteadcbt.com. Again, that's hampsteadcbt.com. And don't forget, November 11th is my 30th birthday, and I'm doing my Edinburgh show for maybe the last time. Who knows? And I really like to share it with you guys. It is very different from the podcast. That's all I'm going to say about that. But thank you so much for listening and tuning in. And congratulations to everyone who is participating in the 14-day workout challenge. If you like the podcast, leave a good review on iTunes. That would be great. And I'm just really happy that this is happening and we're all working together. All right. Beautiful. Have a wonderful day and namaste. Namaste.